Hey, thanks for tuning into my podcast. This is Big Head on the Block, hosted by me, Tim Henderson, aka Big Head. Hey, welcome back to Big Head on the Block. Listen, when I'm not doing interviews, I'm going to start a new segment called War Stories. And the war stories are going to focus on thrilling and dynamic encounters and situations that I've experienced personally or that other officers have relayed to me uh, and or I was there when it happened. So if I'm not doing interviews, we're going to focus on these war stories and we're going to call this first war story a burglar intent on killing. Let me set the stage for you. Mid 2000s, late afternoon, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, upper class, upper middle class area of town, very low crime rate, almost no violent crime. This is an area where people go to work, they come home, they enjoy their afternoons. It's really sunny on this particular day, and I'm guessing it's somewhere between four and six. I'm not really exactly sure because it's been a long time ago. To start us off, the homeowner comes home from work. As he enters his driveway, he's noticing a vehicle in his driveway that doesn't belong. Now, from his own assessment, he tells me that he knows everybody in the neighborhood and he knows what vehicles belong and don't belong. So he's alarmed at this person being in his driveway. He approaches the vehicle and he sees a white female in the vehicle. He tells the white female or he asks the white female, why are you in my driveway? She indicates to him that she's there because she's looking for somebody. And, you know, it's a common tactic used by people who are caught in the act of doing something wrong. They try to say, I'm here for this reason or that reason. Well, she wasn't going to dupe this guy because, like I said, he knows everything about the neighborhood. So he tells her. You're full of BS. He said, you need to leave my driveway and get off my property. At that point in time, she backs up. She gets into the street, starts to drive off, but she hollers something. And she hollers pretty loud. He wasn't sure exactly what she said, but it became clear to him within a you know, a few seconds, maybe less than a minute, what she did. He starts walking toward his house, and as he's getting toward the door, he sees a white male come from the backyard area holding an armful of rifles. Now, he realizes at this point in time that this guy must have been in his house because those were all his rifles. Some were, you know, current versions of uh, newer rifles and some were antiques and stuff. So he's he's on high alert now. He sees the guy and he tells him, hey, man, that's my property. You need to put it down and get out of here. Well, the guy doesn't really pay attention to him, and he keeps walking toward him. As he gets closer, he's, the guy says, man, I'm going to call the cops. You better get out of my, get off my property. Nothing. No response. The next thing that happens, and, and this right here is, is truly amazing. The next thing that happens is the guy pulls a semi-automatic firearm from his waistband area. He puts it into the chest of the homeowner. He pulls the trigger and attempts to execute the homeowner. Luckily for the homeowner, the gun misfired. At that point in time, he realized how lucky he was. He took off running and he was able to call 
BRPD, Baton Rouge City Police, for help. He watched the direction that the white male suspect left and relayed this information to us. Now, it's important to understand the sequence of a uniformed patrol officer and how he gets calls dispatched. Typically, people call 911. They get the initial information. They transfer the call or they'll add BRPD dispatchers to the call and, and keep it ongoing. But most of the time, they'll actually transfer them all the way to BRPD dispatch. At that point in time, dispatch takes the calls. And sometimes we're already dispatching, but most of the time we're not. We are giving the information from our dispatcher. So the dispatch goes out over the air. White male burglar attempted to shoot a homeowner. The homeowner was able to escape. The suspect was described as a white male, and I don't remember the physical characteristics or the clothing at this time, but a white male carrying an armful of rifles. Now, this ought to stick out, right? You're in the neighborhood. Most people are inside, you know, maybe out watering their grass or something or just getting home from work, but there's gonna not there's not going to be a lot of foot traffic in the area. So I'm in close proximity to the call. It's an area that I'm assigned to uh, during my regular scope of duty. So I proceed to the call. Then let me let our listeners understand this. When an officer responds to a call like this, it's important on every call, but particularly calls where we know a perpetrator has attempted to use a firearm to execute a homeowner. All right. We have to be hyper vigilant. We have to make sure that as we respond and we don't become a victim, you know, we, we trying to make it home at the end of the day, at the end of the shift. So we, me specifically responding, I have to basically, you know, scan the area as I'm responding to make sure I don't see him. And if I do see him, I have to have a plan or be able to react accordingly because we already know that this guy is okay trying to shoot somebody. Just so happened a gun misfired and the homeowner was lucky. So one thing I learned early in my career, and I learned it from my FTO, which is a field training officer, Joe Kolar. He told me when you respond to calls and you're looking for people in this of this nature, that it's important to look toward the middle of the street and let your peripheral catch any movement. And, and I found this, this to be extremely useful because your peripheral will see slight movements that are out of the ordinary. So you drive and you're looking straight for the most part. Uh, obviously, if you see something, you're going to scan to that area. But when you're driving and your peripheral picks up little slight movements, it's a really good tactical advantage that you have. So thank you, Joe Kolar, for that. So as I approach the homeowner's address, I see him flagging me down. It's important for the listeners to understand this. When I get there, my number one objective is to get as much detailed information about the suspect and his direction of travel as I possibly can to disseminate that, that out to the officers in the field. Because a lot of times we get information from dispatchers and it's not always accurate. It's not their fault. It's not anybody's fault. It's just sometimes the callers will leave stuff out or they'll say stuff um, that's not really totally accurate just in the, in the heat of the moment, especially you know if they're kind of rattled by the situation. I get there. I get a description. I, I tell my officers that are responding that he still has the weapons in his arm because he just walked away with them, and it's quite a few rifles. He did pull the trigger. The guy showed me. He put the gun to his chest, pulled the trigger. So we know that this guy 
is okay taking a life. As the officers descend upon the area, the next thing that happens is I tell headquarters, headquarters, if you get any suspicious calls of people in the area, please let us know immediately. And the reason I say this is because our dispatchers are really good about making sure that if we're in the area and calls come in, that they relay this to us. But you don't want to leave it to chance. So you tell them if we get any calls, let's let's make sure y'all get it to us immediately. And this proved really beneficial. Our dispatchers at BRPD um, were really good most of the time at getting us information. So within just probably a minute or two, I, I don't remember the exact time frame, this whole incident lasted between an hour and two hours. But within minutes, we get a call. Dispatch says, hey, we have a suspicious white male who is carrying the weapon. So we know it's him. He tried to break into a lady's house. And the lady, you know, he was beating on the door. And, and he he wound up just kind of giving up and going to another house. She did say that he had the semi-automatic gun in his hand and, and was pulling the trigger a couple of times. But it was still misfiring, thank goodness. Well, we don't have a, a good perimeter. We're, we're in a large area. It's a big neighborhood. And we do the best we can to try and contain his movement and basically limit it to an area that we're in control of. But keeping him contained is best case scenario. So when I spoke with the lady, she gave me the direction of travel and everything. And we, we still have this guy who's motivated to get away and to kill. Uh, we, we understand his mindset, but... Understand this, as police officers responding to the area, our mindset is this. We're going to do whatever it takes. We understand that we may have to use lethal force. And I can assure you, we are prepared individually and collectively to meet whatever resistance he tries to put up with us, whether that be a physical encounter or a deadly force encounter. We are all trained, prepared, and experienced for this moment. We have trained our whole career, whether it be tactical training, firearms training, or whatever. And we have general experience from our years of service. So the next thing that happens, and this is one of the most alarming things, the the next call we get from headquarters is we have an elderly male indicating that this man tried to break into his house, but they were able to fend him off and get the door shut back. So once again, I'm the closest unit to this house. So I respond the guy tells us what direction he's heading, and I relay this information. Now, it's getting frustrating at this point because we have mass participation from officers in the area, and we are having trouble locating this guy. And it's it's extremely frustrating because we understand that time is of the essence and that if we as officers don't find this guy, he could literally kill somebody. So we get the next direction to travel. Now, we we still searching, right? We're doing our very best now. You know, we don't there's nobody that wants to capture this guy more than us. We want to encounter him so he doesn't encounter or continue to encounter citizens because that's alarming to us as cops because we're the defenders. We're the ones there to make a difference. Well, we get another call from headquarters just, you know, several minutes later. And this this one right here, you know, I'll make the uh, hair on the back of your neck stand up. A lady calls and says that the suspect is behind a fence and we have officers in a yard and they can't see him, but he can see them because it's, I believe, a six foot wooden fence. Well, the lady 
the citizen who's calling this suspicious incident in is telling us that the offender is pulling the trigger, trying to shoot the officers. Well, we're in a large area, as I told you earlier. We don't know each numerical of every house. So even though they put out the numerical, we still have to figure out who's in what yard and who's who this could who could be being targeted at the time, right? So we finally figured out and the two officers that were there, they seek cover. So we kind of got a general idea of where he's at now. And so we're able to close in our perimeter. Ultimately, we encountered this guy and he had crouched down and was and was hiding in a yard. We encountered him. He put up a little resistance, but ultimately the arrest went without incident. Uh, nobody was harmed, and uh, whether whether it be him or us, everybody was safe at that particular time. And now, more important to us as officers, because we don't really worry about our safety when we're in these encounters. We want to make sure that we defend the other people, so we know the neighborhood's safe. So we breathe a sigh of relief. Well, we put this guy in one car, and we secure all the weapons and everything. The next thing I do as the officer who's handling the whole case is I have to go back and revisit everybody who was potentially um, who potentially encountered this guy. So I have to go re-interview him and get all the specific details. Well, I spoke with the original homeowner, got the details. I spoke with the lady who was the second caller. Then I went to the area where the elderly gentleman had called in. And this story is one that that's really uh, heartwarming. So I asked the gentleman, can you explain to me what happened? He said, officer, somebody knocked on the door. And he he kind of indicated that they were kind of beating on the door more than knocking. Now, we're talking a lot of years ago, mid-2000s, okay? So this is a, a elderly man, somebody's grandfather probably. And people will ask now, why would he answer the door? Well, at that particular time, there was no mass shootings. There was no, um, there was not any kind of violence really that went on in in that particular area. So he probably just did it, you know, to find out why somebody's beating on his door, right? Well, when he realizes that there's a threat there and that this threat is intent on doing some harm, he lowers his shoulder. He realizes his wife is in the kitchen and she's vulnerable. He hollers to his wife, "Hey, run!" And, you know, he tells us somebody's at the door with a gun. Now, the guy's pulling the trigger and trying to shoot to get in, but the gun is misfiring still. Thank goodness, right? The next thing that happens is the thing that, that really defines a love for another human being. This lady was interviewed, and I asked her, what did you do when your husband told you to run? She said, officer, I'm going to be honest with you. I never thought about running. And I, I said, well, what did you do? And she said, I've been with this guy, and I think it was over 50 years. I've been by his side my whole life, and I was not about to leave him in his time of need. I left the kitchen area and went into the living room area where he was trying to hold the door from being pushed in, and I helped him get that door shut and locked, and then we called the police. And I said, wow, that's amazing. So you put yourself in harm's way to help your husband. Your fight-or-flight syndrome turned out to be fight. And I was really amazed. And, you know, I told the lady that I was not only impressed, but extremely proud to know that this story occurred the way it did. And in today's society, we would call this ride or die. Now, back then, that that 
what that uh, phrase wasn't created, but that's a true ride or die. So ultimately what happens is we make the arrest. Now, I don't know the outcome of the trial because as a cop, I didn't really follow cases because if I was called to testify, I would testify. But keeping up with every case and every arrest that you make is pretty much impossible. And nor is there any reason to do it. You know, I, I don't really care about the outcome. I do my job. There's uh, district attorneys that do their job. And then, you know, ultimately the judge will make the sentencing. So um, I don't ever remember testifying in this particular case. So I'm guessing they made a plea deal with him. I'm hoping the detective who does follow up eventually found the female who was involved in this also. Um, I'm not sure because I never made the call. You know, as a uniform patrol officer, you handle calls dynamically. You don't do a whole lot of follow up unless it's, you know, at the exact time it's occurring. This case would have been uh, sent to a detective for follow-up. They would have used our arrest and probably interviewed the guy and, and, and ho- ho- hopefully found out who the female was. War story number one, man, there was a lot. You had an intruder that attempted to kill multiple people. And let me tell you why he wasn't able to kill him. This guy was on drugs and he didn't realize that although his magazine was full, he had a whole lot of bullets in that gun. He didn't have one in the chamber. And for those who don't know about semi-automatics, you see on TV, people grab the top slide and they rack it back and it goes. They're putting one in the chamber at that time. Some people just keep their magazines loaded and not one in the chamber. And that's what happened. He kept pulling the trigger and not realizing because he was so impaired uh, with drugs that he didn't have one in the chamber. But that's God looking out for all of us. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Big Head on the Block. I'm Tim Henderson, the host. I look forward to dropping another podcast soon. Please give us any comments, likes, dislikes, or any topics y'all would like to discuss. Thank you.